This podcast is sponsored by Safe House Rehab Thailand, the premier drug and alcohol rehab dedicated to enhancing the science of recovery. First, a plug for my sponsor, who has given me the opportunity to help the families and loved ones of alcoholics and addicts better understand the nature of the disease and what they can and shouldn't do about it, shouldn't try to do about it. We say in our podcast and blog that our primary goal is to help you make an informed decision at this critical stage of your life. Safe House Rehab Thailand represents the modern approach to recovery, founded on safety, which is why we absolutely outperform traditional rehabs when it comes to intake and detox, technology, and aftercare. To learn more about our modern, advanced approach to recovery, we invite you to visit safehouserehab.com or send your questions and comments to info at safehouserehab.com. Hi everyone, Bruno Jr. here, and I thought I would take this opportunity to share my 27-year journey of recovery. I'm joined by Tony, who um, is a dear friend of mine, happens to be a sound engineer for our podcasts, podcast episodes, and uh, I've invited him to ask a question or weigh in as I go. So let me start at the beginning, and I'll make it interesting, because some of these, quote, drunkologues are like all, whoa, uh, are all like sadness and woe, and that's not nearly the case. I had a lot of fun in the early going. I graduated from Loyola University Grad School of Business in uh, a long time ago, 1970, and uh, then I went on to work in the advertising business in Chicago. And early on, I realized that I had really had it good in life. I had great parents. I grew up on a farm in Ontario, and I had the best parents in the world. I mean, I just Nothing I can point to to say there was any abuse. There was nothing but love. There was a lot of hard work. You're a farm boy, and you don't get to go into town and play hockey with the other guys, but so what? Um, I had it made. You know, I ate well. Um, I ended up going to a boys' school in Kennebunkport, Maine at the age of 14. So my parents, you know, let me go, didn't discourage me, wanted me to see the world a little bit. So I'm very grateful to them. You know, my mother's still alive. She's 98 years old. My dad passed away uh 27 years ago, the year I got sober. You know, I miss him dearly. I think about him a lot. My brother and I, my only brother, who is uh, three, four years younger than me, I'm 73 now. Um, We're close, but like brothers, you know, we've had our moments. But uh, he's my only brother, and I love him dearly. He now um, runs a farm, and believe it or not, uh, the the laws have changed in Canada so that you were allowed, so that marijuana is completely legal. And he happens to be a dope farmer. <laughs> uh, that's so funny. We were a tobacco farm initially. Tobacco business went to hell. And then we rented the land to various people, including uh, the ginseng growers. And then about three years ago, my brother decided to make uh, marijuana his uh, full-time crop. It can be extremely profitable. Right now there's a glut on the market because of legalization. So he's got several hundred thousand dollars worth of dope sitting there <laughs> waiting to be told. So it's an it's been an interesting life, and I'll go back to after I graduated from uh, uh, grad school. I had had it so easy that I discovered later that I was really an escape artist. I didn't really want to face responsibility because I, whatever I did in school wasn't hard. You know, if there was a hard course like organic chemistry, I just switched uh, switched the course, dropped it. I was in pre med at Boston University, uh, my in my in my bachelor's program. And so my parents funded that too. I wanted to go to school there. I went to school there. You know, I applied to a bunch of really good schools. 
uh, and there were certain schools that I didn't get into, but I got into a really good one, and my SAT scores were really pretty good, pretty high, um, and my grade point average was over the top because uh, we we were forced to study three hours a day and, and the, at the boarding school, so you can't but you know get good grades. I wasn't a delinquent. I was never in any trouble. Um, I smoked some dope. I started smoking marijuana early, like I was 17 or 18. Um, but I didn't become a true blue alcoholic until after I discovered that um, life was difficult. I had extreme anxiety facing up to responsibility in the ad business or in any business. And I used alcohol and to some extent marijuana as a way to stuff those feelings of anxiety. And in my, I would say in my mid-20s, I got hooked. And I remember I, one of our clients was the McCormick Company in Baltimore, Maryland. We were based in Chicago. And uh, my boss was a heavy drinker, so we would get blasted every, every night. Uh, often the client wasn't with us and ended up with hangovers and meetings and stuff like that. But that was uh, the standard of the day. Uh, was, it was expected that you would have a martini for lunch. My boss would have a martini or two for lunch. I'd have a beer, and I'd, I couldn't understand how he could handle the afternoon after two, maybe usually two solid martinis or three. And we'd go across town and sit at a, you know, one of those Chicago eateries where it would be German, you know, sausage and sauerkraut and beer. Stuff yourself and get half drunk and go back to work in the afternoon. But that was sort of a given, and I didn't know it was sneaking up on me. Then uh, I switched jobs to one of the best agencies in the world, Leo Burnett. Uh, I, I went looking for, I wasn't looking for a better job, but I was ambitious. I wanted to make more money. A friend of mine was over there and he said, hey, Jack Woods, I remember his name. I used to hang with him and he said, hey, they're hiring at Leo. I said, they never hire from the outside. He said, well, their business is expanding so much they have to. I interviewed and I got the job. And uh, so I was working for a smaller agency across town on you know various businesses and I was in a state of shock as I said because the responsibility was just really getting to me I got I went into depression and anxiety I ended up checking myself into a mental hospital it was that bad I looked around and I said I'm not going here these people are really sick so I went to see a psychiatrist the psychiatrist didn't really understand and I don't blame him that a lot of my problems were being caused by my the beginnings of raging alcoholism and I used alcohol to relieve me of this extreme anxiety and depression so he prescribed some medication he thought that I should watch porn movies so I could have sex with my wife I mean okay fine that obviously I was on the wrong track and I didn't know but I worked really really hard um, at, at Leo and I did very very well despite all this um, I ended up being assigned uh, the United Airlines on the, that account. I worked my ass off. I did well. And this is not uncommon among alcoholics where if we focus, we're usually, normally we're not dumb people. I don't know if we're smarter than the rest, but we're intelligent people who when we focus our energies on the right thing, we get good results. So I got good results. I worked on the Kellogg cereal business. I was responsible for, as an account executive for several different brands. And I made a difference. You know, I had some good ideas. Uh, I, I was also responsible, I remember, for the food service division. And that, that, that division really needed some fresh thinking. And all I did was just bring my disciplines to the, 
to the table and the client loved the work and you know so I got lots of pats on the back I do remember later however uh, in my seventh or eighth year I spent eight years there where I traveled to New York on the Shenley uh, imports business and they imported a number of brands the most famous was Dewar's White Label so we did the marketing for that the advertising basically um, and but we would we would travel to New York first class and stay in the best hotels and get drunk all night and, and buy all the hookers we wanted. But we would end up going to the client meeting with huge hangovers. I remember one night <laughs> I went to bed at, I don't know what it was, five o'clock in the morning and was supposed to get up at seven or something like that. I've been asleep for a couple hours and my boss who was younger than me. He's a good guy. Uh, he has a knock on the door and I said, I said, Bobby, I said, you haven't even changed. He says, I haven't even been to bed yet. So he went out he was partying until 7 a.m. That's the way it was. Anyway, the client made note of our red eyes and sleepy behavior, and we covered ourselves. I said, Bobby, if I'm not taking notes, you're taking notes because I can't pay attention for three hours straight. Uh, client got a hold of our boss, uh, Howard Kane, uh, good guy, older guy, and said, these guys better not show up with hangovers anymore or they're off the business. So we got what is known as the Green Memo. He didn't even call us into his office. He sent us the Green Memo, which outlined the complaint of the boss, blah, blah, blah. And I'm giving you guys, you're on probation. I'm giving you guys another chance. I'll tell you what, we cleaned up our act so fast, and it never happened again. So we're alert. I was certainly alert. I know Bobby, who I don't think became an alcoholic, um, we're on alert, and we correct our behavior when we can so as time goes on, um, I went through a divorce in about 1980, and it was not a fun divorce. I was the principal cause of it because um, I would not show up or I'd be drunk. My wife decides she'd rather have another person in her life, and it all fell apart. Well, while that's happening, I, I meet this sexy woman on one of my trips to New York, and I went to New York almost every week. I looked at my trip log one time, and they give you a trip log and say, in the last year, you know, these were your expenses, this is how many trips you took. And it was a form of accountability, but we really weren't, we weren't responsible for the profits on the business, and they were enormous anyway. They just want us to know, you know, what we were doing and, and try to maybe correct our behavior if there was, you know, too much spending. I made 40 trips in the space of 52 weeks that one year. So it tells you that, you know, I'm in New York almost every week. And when I'm in New York almost every week, flying first class, staying in the best hotels, having tons of money, unlimited expense account, what happens? You go out, you drink at the best bars, you pick up the most expensive hookers, you know, and, and that's, that's your life. And then you come back, and of course you're lying to your wife. Uh, I had a five-year-old daughter, and so she took off for Texas with her daughter. And I remember there's a poignant moment that just still just stabs me in the heart. I've got my boxes stacked up in the attic, and I was taking them down. And my, my daughter had written in her little five-year-old writing, my dad left me. And I'm thinking, oh, God. I mean, I broke down right there. But so that's the way it was. So I meet this beautiful woman sexy woman end up having this violent crazy passionate uh, affair with her and I ended up leaving Chicago leaving one of the best jobs you could imagine uh, to chase this woman to New York 
And I went back and forth. I even said to the guys in New York, no, I changed my mind. I went back and forth. Well, I had a really good resume. Uh, I ended up being, a, I, was, I, I applied to Ted Bates, New York, which was a big agency in its day, home of the famous USB, you know, all of that, Rasa Reeves' USB. You know, I know the history, right? I was in the business a long time. Uh, so I ended up working on the Mars business, and Mars owned all the candy bars, but they also owned a pet food company called CalCan. I was assigned as the account supervisor on CalCan, and for the first, and, and, and I'm also living across town, a walk across town. Uh, near, uh, so our office was on Times Square, and my home was on the east side at Tudor City. So it was maybe at most a 30 minute walk across town. So during that time period, we just, we got drunk. We, she did coke, I didn't like coke. She was out all night, we'd get into fights, I'd move out, blah, blah, blah. It's just crazy. One night, I didn't really wait up for her because she'd go out and, as she was, quote, an actress, right? She's a beautiful woman, big heart. But when she drank, she became a completely different person. And so there was meanness when she was drunk. I wasn't, I wasn't mean, but I was crazy. And then when she was sober, she was an angel. So it's one of those horrible things where just waiting for the other shoe to drop. So one night, um, I'm asleep. It's, we're in a studio, one room, bathroom, and a little kitchenette, and that's it. 600 bucks a month at the time, I remember. The fourth floor, sixth floor, walk up, no elevator. I think, no, there was an elevator. So it's two o'clock in the morning, there's a knock on the door. I'm going, okay, fine, you know. I open the door and it's her and a detective. No, no, not, not a knock on the door. The key, she, she opens the door and, and I'm in bed and the only light is the light coming from the hallway. And she's there with this cop who followed her because men would follow her. I had to get used to that. She was a pretty good girl most of the time. So she's coked up. The cop is drunk and coked up. And I said, what the fuck are you doing there? He pulls out his gun. He puts it up to my head and he says, hey, motherfucker, you want me to come over and break both your legs? And I was like, could you just please leave? And he did. He left. And then I'm up, you know, fucking fighting with her. Fucking bull, excuse me, I, can you bleep that out? I'm fighting with her. So now it gets into a real row because I'm sleepy and I'm still half drunk. She's completely drunk and coked up. She had taken off almost all her clothes and all she had left was her panties and her high-heeled shoes, which was very appealing to me at the time, but we're angry. And she's, she's first of all, she's just a gorgeous, gorgeous woman. Marilyn Monroe type figure, all of that stuff. Something that a man would fall in lust with, which is what it was. So she gets ticked off, takes the glasses off my face and stomps on them. Now I'm enraged. I grab her by the hair, I'll open the door and I throw her out in the hallway. And I lock the door. Well, she knew the neighbor, so she's now it's two in the morning, one in the morning. Boom, 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 help, he threw me out, help, I don't have any clothes. Neighbor wakes up, she knew her. Oh, Charlie, I'm so sorry. Call the cops. Okay, the cops, they go to their door. Blah, 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 he did this, he did that. Okay, fine. And this is like 30, 40 minutes later, cops came right away. Boom, 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 knock on the door. Police open up. Stick your hands out the door so we can see them. Stick my hands out the door. Okay, open the door now. We're opening the door now. Open the door. Turn around, put the cuffs on you. Okay, fine. 
all right so i said i can't see so well you know like you're coming in the cop car man you're coming in the car we're taking you to the station and i'm so i get in the car and they say you got to get away from that crazy woman <laughs> she's crazy and i'm thinking oh i guess you guys know what went on he's yeah we know let's just take you to the station we've got to book you for simple assault i said what's that Assault without a deadly weapon and no no injuries, but you did assault her. And we're we're is she pressing charges? Yeah, she's oh damn. So they put me in the cage and I look around. And it's really clean. And it's quiet. And it's nice. It's the East Side Police Station, upper class neighborhood, right? And I'm thinking to myself, well, this isn't bad. I mean, come on, this isn't bad. You're you're in cuffs. You're in jail, and you think this isn't bad? Well, it wasn't as bad as I thought in my head, right? So. I'm there, and I said, what are you going to do? He says, well, we'll let you sober up, and we'll probably release you on your own recognizance in the morning if you don't have a record or a warrant. I said, no, you won't find anything. Here's my license. Oh, they took my license. Put me in the computer. You're fine. So we'll let you sober up. I'm going, well, there's nobody else in the cage, thank God. you know. But the cage has just got you know, a bench, and that's it. So I'm supposed to spend the night there. And I'm thinking, oh, man. About 45 minutes later, I hear all this commotion. Let him out. Let him out. What are you doing? What are you you, know, you got to get out. You know, what did you do? You arrested him. And I'm thinking to myself, you're the one who called the cops. You're the one who's pressing charges. But that's Charlie. So she comes over. Okay, we're going to let you out on, on your own recognizance and sign these papers. But by the way, before you go, we're going to schedule a reconciliation hearing for you guys. So, oh, that's really good. So go home. We're both sober. And uh, the rest of the night was like normal, almost. I uh, went to, was it Sunday night? I can't remember. I know I went to work the next day. And I'm relieved, right? Oh, man, I'm not in jail. I don't have to explain myself to the, to the boss or any of that stuff. To, no, but I'd say about a month later, go to the reconciliation hearing. And you guys good? Yeah. I said, I'm really sorry. Well, there's no injuries. It was, there's no weapon. There's no, you don't have a record. She doesn't have a record. What we're going to do is expunge your record completely. There'll be no record of your arrest or, or anything. So, you know, so what are the consequences, right? The consequences could have been much, much worse. I could have hurt her. I could have used a weapon. Uh, the cops might not have been so nice. I might have spent more time in jail. Uh, if she had continued with the charges, it would have been far more serious. And I might have spent, you know, a week in jail or something like that or at least had to be bailed out. So none of that happened. So that was just an example of an eruption in violence that would happen occasionally when I was drinking. I wasn't violent all the time, but I was violent, let's put it this way, I wasn't always violent when I was drinking, but when I, uh, but when I was violent, I was drinking. I was only, only violent when I was drinking. So another occasion, uh, this is life in New York, while I'm drinking and using and living with, you know, my, uh, my lover. By, by the way, my daughter now is down in Texas and my, and my girlfriend didn't want me to have any deal with her. So I went through that pain. Uh, and I was completely under her command. I just was completely obsessed with her. You know, I couldn't live without her. I couldn't live with her. But, I mean, I was in that zone, that an obsessive, compulsive, sexual addiction zone, plus addicted to marijuana, lots of marijuana. And, and drinking, but really no other drugs. So my buddies from Canada, I grew up, as I mentioned, on a farm in Ontario, and I met these guys a long time ago, Boy Scout camp and other functions, cultural functions. 
And uh, so three of them, you know, Al, Joe, and Leo, who had inherited all this money from his wife, just he every year he takes the boys on wherever they want to go on a reunion that lasts three or four days, and there's lots of drinking and women and drugs. So they come to visit me in New York, and um, I didn't take, I don't remember taking it that one or two days off to, to visit with them, but um, so this is my idea of a tour of New York City. Go out at night, go all the clubs, get drunk, do coke, chase women, right? You don't go to the Statue of Liberty, you don't go to these places, because you spend all night partying, and then you sleep until noon, and then you wake up and you have a few Bloody Marys, and then you're ready to party again. So that's, that's my tour of New York City. You could do New York City's a whole world unto itself. You could spend weeks there and see something new every day. So instead of that, we decided we're going to party. So we get in a cab. We're at one club, and this was the days of Studio Fifty Four, the Red Parrot, the China Club, the Heartbreak. This is one. This was the height of the disco area era. So we get in a cab. We're going to go to another club. We're going to go to the Heartbreak. Uh, you know, it's a it's a church that they've converted to a disco. It's really cool. There's lots of women, lots of dope, all this other stuff. So they're in the back seat, and uh, I don't know. I was we were all wasted, you know. And they said the cab driver would take us to the Heartbreak. Blah blah blah. Well, you have to drive through some sketchy neighborhoods to get there. Uh, Lower East Side, I think. And Al said something that just ticked me off. So I turned around. This is what I did. And I remember, you know, why are these things stick in your memory? Because they were so awful. I turned around and grabbed Al by the necktie and I said, listen, motherfucker, I'm going to cut your nuts off and stuff them down your throat. And then the cabbie goes, get out of my cab. Stops the cab. Give me 20 bucks. Get out of my cab. And I'm thinking, I don't blame him. I don't want a bunch of crazy, rowdy, violent people, violent people in my cab. So we pile out, and, and Al and the other guys are freaking like, where are we? Because you're in the Bowery, and it's darkly lit, nobody on the street, but, you know, it's a scary kind of place. There's a little bit of garbage floating around. This is like in the movies. But we're four 40-year-old, tall, robust guys. I said, who's going to take on four guys? Nobody. I said, relax. So I said, I know where we are. Let's either find another cab or we'll walk three or four blocks, take a right, and we're right there on a main street. So we ended up doing that. We ended up going to the heartbreak. And, you know, it's late and the lights are flashing and the music's going and the women are dancing. And then you go to the bathroom and there's a guy there standing there with Coke on his hand and people are just rolling up their bills and taking a little snort. He's giving it away. It's like, Okay, you're going to give it away, I'll use it. So people are walking by and taking a snort right off the guy's, like the, this part, he's got a whole pile, well, he's just giving it away. And that's how it went. That's, that's, that was my life in New York. So about three years later, I'd worn out my welcome. I'd become arrogant uh, and useless. And, but I wasn't fired immediately. We were acquired by a British company and our stock price, I had some internal stock. The stock price went from 360 or $320 a share internally to $900 a share overnight. So anybody that had a sizable amount of stock, you know, would make 250 to half a million dollars, just like that. Well, the other rule was if, if, I, if I were your boss and I fired you before the acquisition, I got your shares. 
So that's what happened. I was fired before the acquisition and my boss got my shares and made $250,000 overnight on you know his shares. My internal stock went up in value from 320 to 360, so I didn't, you know, I didn't lose, but I didn't gain. And that was because I you the who who do they fire? They fire people they don't like because everybody is presumably is pretty much equally competent. So you not get fired for your you will have had to screw up some relationships, which is which I did. I had three account supervisors, uh, excuse me, yeah, three account supervisors and two or three A's reporting directly to me at that point. I had a corner office on the 26th floor, 1515 Broadway, pearl carpet, beautiful furniture, a three-way glass window, so it was a push-out window. I could look west to the Hudson, south to the World Trade Center, which was still up, and east to the Chrysler Building, and the New York Times building is right across the street. It was magnificent, right? Nothing, what could go wrong? Well, when you become a jerk and arrogant and, and your own staff hates you because of the way you're acting, you know, you're, you're going to get your butt fired. So, sorry to interrupt you there, but what, what I really want to know is how old were you then? Okay. Or during this All right. time? So, so, I started drinking seriously. I, I believe I became a full-on alcoholic probably in my mid-20s. Uh, I got out of grad school at 22 by 24 four or five, I was drinking every day and I was drugs. And that went on for 21 years. I sobered up at the age of 46. So 21 years of alcohol and drug abuse. Right, um, okay. And that's when you moved from uh, New York? Uh, yeah, I moved from... New York to Chicago. From New York to Milwaukee. Uh, Chicago to New York. Chicago New York to New York, to New York to Milwaukee, correct. And right, then, right. then here to Thailand later, later. Uh, so uh, I was... When I moved from Chicago to New York, I was, uh, it was 1980, so that made me 33. And then when I moved from New York to Milwaukee, I was 43. So I spent about 10 years in New York. That's right, that's right. Tune in next week for the next episode of Busting Addiction and Its Myths, where we now have our weekly episodes titled by topic for you to search and download at your leisure, all in the interest of busting some myths and bringing you the truth about the face of addiction and alcoholism today.